You're listening to Hosea, the Jealous Love of a Holy God, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Hosea chapter 2 verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably or tenderly unto her. And so what, what Hosea is saying is that even though the judgment will be severe, God, God's plan for Israel is not to let them go entirely. That in this time of judgment, God will speak to his people once again and he will allure them. He will draw them into himself. In verse 15, we find that God will give her back her vineyards. The ones that that he took from her in judgment will be given back to her. That he will make the valley of trouble or the valley of Achor to a door of hope. Right? And what a beautiful picture that this this sin, this estrangement, this this terrible thing that once happened, will now there will be hope that's breathed into that. We see in verse 15 as well that she, his bride, will sing and dance as in the days of her youth when she was delivered from the bondage of Egypt. In other words, this deliverance from Egypt, and in fact, the deliverance that, that the deliverance of Egypt was pointing toward, right? This, this was just a foreshadow of the deliverance that would come. And he's saying that that deliverance will happen once again, that Israel will be delivered. In verse 16, we find that she will not, she will call me husband and not my Lord. And in other words, that I, it'll be a pure loving relationship, not just this servitude type of relationship and not this, I'm um, combining the bales, the, that they, the false gods with the God of heaven, right? This, just this purity and this faithfulness that will happen. In verse 17, she will put away the false gods from her lips and from her mind. In other words, God will do a work in her heart such that she will become faithful. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? That somehow God is going to take away the praise of those false gods from her lips and take away the thoughts of those false gods from her mind. That's God's promise. That's what God will do. In verse 18, we began studying that last week and we said, it says, in, And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. We have here the promise of a new covenant that's coming. right? And this covenant will once again bring into harmony all of creation. Right? The animals and the fowl of the air and humankind will all be brought back into uh, this wonderful harmony, the harmony that God had planned right from the beginning that he would take away the bow and the sword and the battle, which is this, this idea of death and, and destruction and misery, that that will be taken away and that there will be no more death, that people will lie down in safety. And this is the new covenant, right? This is the redemption of all creation. This is the reversal of the curse. This is God being pictured as a mediator between Israel and the rest of creation. And so we saw in Jeremiah chapter 31 that the the new covenant will be between Israel and Judah. And what I want to read for you this morning in Isaiah, because it speaks of this covenant once again. I know this this morning will be like filled with these little like interruptions and stuff because it's picnic Sunday. And so that's wonderful, but it requires some work to be done in there. So I'm going to do my best to concentrate. If you can do the same, that would be great. Um. 
in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 11, we get this small glimpse into what this new covenant looks like. What does it look like when all of creation is once, once and for all reconciled together? Right? What does this harmony look like? What did the, the original creation look like? And what will the new heaven and the new earth look like? The Garden of Eden. Okay, And we get this picture in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 11. But Isaiah is not speaking about the Garden of Eden. Isaiah is speaking about the, the day, the city of Jerusalem that's to come. He says in verse 11, or verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. You know, wolf and lamb dwelling together. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, which is a poisonous snake, the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek. Isn't that interesting? Gentiles are being brought into this. And his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. What he's saying here is that he is going to be gathering all these people once again into this beautiful, perfect place. And and that picture, I mean, it's almost, it's almost like a Disney scene. Isn't it where he's describing like the the lion and the lamb and the wolf and the, and they're them all getting along and the little child leading them and and just like this it's it's a beautiful thing it's this like dream that we can't imagine ever being a reality and I think what's really neat about this passage is that it, it calls us to imagine a reality that's not that's not this life right can you imagine a reality of a world not not so different from this world, but a world without any sin, without any curse, without any evil, without any tears, without any disease, without any sickness, without any, any harm, without any, any danger, right? Can you imagine this security and the beauty of a world like that? And that's what's being pictured for us. And I think as believers, we should, we should spend some time at least thinking about what the future holds. Right? The Bible does, on a regular basis, tell us to think about the kingdom and seek the kingdom and to, um, I think, envision um, heaven and the day to come. Right? We're not supposed to live for just this life. We're living for that life. Yes, how, how appropriate it is for our, our time right now. Mm-hmm. All we know is violence and hatred and evil. We see it all around us. Absolutely. Unless of hope that is. Right. But there's coming a day when that will not be the case. There is. And you know what I think is, is amazing about this passage? That when, when he's giving the reason for that, when he's given the reason that it's, that's this great, this is what he says. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Right? I mean, that, that is the secret. That, that's the difference. When the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, everything is set right. Everything is made right. And so we should long for that day. He goes on in verse 19 of Isaiah, and he sh- says, 
I will be, sorry, in verse 19 of Hosea, he says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. That's, that's his promise. I'm going to make you my bride forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I mean, can that verse sound more like the gospel? That, that somehow there's going to be this marriage relationship between us and God and that it will be in righteousness and judgment and loving kindness and in mercy? It, it's Somehow this marriage will be completely right. Right? And this is not saying that God is going to make some kind of concession and that he's going to just take this imperfect bride and leave her as being imperfect forever. And that, right, this is the picture of perfect reconciliation, of everything being made right, of his bride being just and righteous. In fact, look at what verse 20 says. He says, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Remember who he's talking about here, right? Israel, like the epitome of unfaithfulness. He's talking about Gomer, the whore. And he's saying, somehow we will be wedded in perfect faithfulness together. This is an unbelievable thought. You shall know the Lord. And can I tell you something? He's not just talking about Israel, not just talking about Gomer. He's talking about us. That there will be a day when we are perfectly faithful to the Lord. And that, uh, what a glorious day that'll be. He says, you shall know the Lord. And that is, I think, the reversal of, you forgot about me. And that was his condemnation before. You forgot about me, you went and worshipped and served other gods. And now he says, you'll be faithful, you'll know me. And that's, I think in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see this um, allusion to that. He says, for, um, Paul writes, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even also as I am known. And I think what's happening here is he's saying with Israel, you don't even know me. You forgot me. You've you've gone to worship other gods. And Paul is saying now as a believer that we've stepped into this place where we see dimly. We see a little bit. We know, we know more than, more than the one that's completely forgotten and served other gods, but we, but we still, there's still this gap in our knowledge and gap in our faithfulness we know in part, but someday it will be face to face. Someday you will know also as I am known. I think that's, a, that's an amazing thing. Verse 21. It shall come to pass in that day, and this is a, this is a little bit of a poetic three verses here, and so we just kind of figure out what he's saying here. So it shall come to pass in that day that I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her, I mean, I will sow Jezreel unto me in the earth. And Jezreel there is now a picture of the justified Israel, the Israel that has, that has been betrothed to Christ in faithfulness. And I think what's happening here is that he's depicting the perfect union and communication between the people, God, the sky, the earth, the living things that grow, and the people of God. I mean, that's, that's what's happening. And so if we were to picture this drought, okay, this famine, which is kind of where Israel's at now, okay, this time when they're just completely needy and famished and impoverished and in bondage. And he says, God hears and he communicates to the heavens to send rain. And so the heavens send rain and the, earth, the soil, the earth, it brings forth fruit. 
And Jezreel is, is Israel, and he's the one that deserved the judgment, and yet now he gets to eat at the fruit of the soil because there's now, once again, restored this perfect harmony. I have something to add. Uh, like in yeah. Hebrew, it's not the verb shema, meaning to hear. It's actually amma, meaning respond. So it's yep. not just hearing, it's right. responding. That, you're right. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and so that's, that's where we get this, this communication, right? That, it, that it's not just to hear, but it's to, also to respond. And so God is placing his people in this new perfect earth. And the great part about that is in verse 23, it says, I will sow her unto me in the earth. I will sow Israel. So in this new heaven and earth, in, in this new perfect place where everything is working perfectly in harmony, we are placed there for God, or, or the Jezreel, the ones who were once under God's wrath, are now placed there for him. Unto me is, um, it's, I will sow her for myself, right? And so we are in this new heaven and earth for the glory of God. So it's a great thought. Uh, verse number 24, and I will have mercy upon her, that have not obtained mercy. And I will say to them, which were not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. And all, I mean, all of the judgment that had been laid upon Israel, every child that had been born that symbolized this judgment, everything was completely reversed, right? Everything was made right. The day when God says to Israel, thou art my people, and Israel responds, and you're my God. What a day that will be. We talk about the gospel sometimes as a rescue mission, right? I mean, we, we think about it as, as this, like, rescue mission. And that really sounds neat. It sounds good. It, it has a, a nice ring to it. But I wonder if sometimes we're, we're clear about what we mean. I think sometimes what we what we are thinking about as a rescue mission, it's like, oh, this person is drowning or this person is burning up and, and God rushes in and saves them from the fire and that's pretty much it. They're, they become this hero. Um, but the rescue mission, it's, it's of a people who have purposefully ran away from God and the rescue is God going back and finding that people and bringing them back into somehow, I mean, we're not, we're not clear how yet, but somehow bringing those people back into perfect fellowship so that they can have this relationship with him forever, right? It's not just like a save from the fire kind of rescue. It's a save from the whoring and from the unfaithfulness and from this, this going into bondage of this life to save back into a perfect and glorious relationship with God. Right? So we're not saved just to not be in the fire anymore. We're saved to know him. That's the goal, that he is our God, that we are his people, that we know him face to face. And I think these verses um, really point us toward what the gospel is really about. It's, it's not just rescuing to bring us you know, away from the, the danger. It's rescuing to a relationship with God. So we come to chapter 3. Uh, does anybody know James Montgomery Boyce? Heard that name before? A lot of you, a lot of you probably have. He is a very well-known theologian. He's, he's passed away now, but he's written a number of books and a number of commentaries, and he wrote a commentary on Hosea. And when he wrote about Hosea chapter three, this is what he said: Hosea chapter three is the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Now. 
I mean, this is a guy who knows his Bible. He's written volumes. I have a book that's over a thousand pages in my office that's written by him. It's uh, Theology of All Christianity. So he knows his Bible very, very well. And he says that these five verses are the greatest in the entire Bible. Um, so just to set you up for how wonderful these verses are, I actually feel terrified right now because I don't know how, how you present these verses in a way that does them any justice. But I want to first notice that there's a literary change between what was said in chapter 1 and how Hosea pre- presents this situation in chapter 1 to how he presents it now. In chapter 1, verse 2, he said, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Take unto you a wife of whoredoms and a children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Right? So that's a verse you guys love, so I just thought I'd throw that out there again. Um, but do you notice that he said... Um, that it's, he said to Hosea, and it's, it's the Lord speaking to Hosea, and so Hosea is writing in this third-person narrative. Right? He, he's stepping back and saying, this is, this is kind of what happened, and so I'm, I'm pointing at it. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, it changes to a first-person narrative, where he is, he is speaking as if this was happening, like just, just recently happened. I just think that that even goes to the, the depth of what's happening here, um, like the, maybe the freshness of all of this in Hosea's mind, that he stopped writing as if he was stepping back, remembering something and, and telling us the story, and he, he now once again placed himself in the story. And so that's how Hosea chapter one or chapter 3, verse 1 begins. He says, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, According to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. He says, go love a woman beloved of her friend. Now, the idea of beloved of her friend, if we just take it for what it sounds like, it sounds like maybe she's got a really good friend, right? Or, or maybe she's got a boyfriend who's just like, they're in, they're in this wonderful relationship. And that, that Jose is being told, that is not what's trying to be conveyed here at all. What's being conveyed is the, a very, very physical kind of love. So go love a woman who, who, has, who is another man's lover, right? Or, or other men's lovers. Go take a woman who is, who is an adulteress, right? And we know all about Jose, but I want, or, or, all about Gomer. But I want us to, to now picture that this is the, the life of a man, a life of a real live man who lived, you know, three, 2,700 years ago. And, and now he's telling the story of, of his life and what he was called upon God or called upon by God to do. That he was called to go and to take this woman, one, once again, who was now sleeping in the bed of another man or, or other men. Probably multiple men. I mean, that this is the situation. This is what he's called to do. The symbolism is clear. God loves Israel, who is a lover of other gods. But what's, what's kind of funny here is that according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, and, and to describe Israel, it's that who took other gods, which, which makes complete sense to us, because like this is the idolatry, adultery. And, and they love flagons of wine. And, and most translations translate that they love cakes of raisins. So it's kind of weird that it's like they, they love these... You know, they love other gods, and that's terrible and awful. And, like, and then you can imagine, like, the, the, the sentence being delivered, like, they love other gods, and then everybody gets, like, really quiet, like, and, then, and they love cakes of raisins. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's kind of weird. Why are you bringing that up? 
Um, and so there'd probably be some confusion, maybe, when that's first announced. Um, there certainly is for us. I don't think God is concerned about their choice of dessert. Uh, in fact, King David in 2 Samuel chapter 6 um, ate raisin cakes, and he shared raisin cakes with his kingdom. And so there's nothing wrong with raisin cakes in particular. Um, but raisin cakes were associated with the worship of false gods. Okay, So um, what Dwayne Garrett, who's a commentator, said, he said, we can surmise from these examples and from the context that the raisin cakes Hosea describes were used in pagan worship. They, were, they may have been a part of ecstatic or wild celebrations and may have played a role in the promiscuity of the fertility cult. And the reason for that is just that raisins had a great deal of energy, and so they put a, needing a lot of energy with the fertility god. And so, so they, they put those things together. And, and so that it was used, raisin cakes were used in the worship of false gods. And so what he's saying is they loved other gods, and that's very clear because they were, I mean, this was their lifestyle, right? Their lifestyle pointed toward their love for other gods. Um, now, there is some debate on who this woman is. Um, now, right away, I think reading it, we would just assume this is Gomer. And so, but uh, does anybody think that maybe it's somebody other than Gomer? I'm setting up for failure. I shouldn't ask a question like that. Um, yeah, no, you're wrong. Um, I, I don't think that this is another, ra- Kim. <laughs> I don't think this is another random woman, right? Because what he's, what he's saying here now is that this woman, is, at first, when Hosea's first called to marry Gomer, it's to marry a wife of promiscuity, right? And so to marry a, a prostitute, but not an adulteress, okay? Now this woman is an adulteress, so she's clearly married to somebody. It would be really weird if God said, go find somebody else's wife and marry her, right? That, that wouldn't make any sense at all. And so um, if you're following the picture of um, God and Israel and their unfaithfulness, this is not a new Israel. This is not a different nation. This is the same Israel that's being pictured by the woman, and so it makes a lot of sense that it's the same woman. So the reason why, why would her name not be mentioned here? I think the reason for that is just that because of the way she has treated her husband, she has lost, she's lost the ability to be called um, Hosea's husband or wife anymore. She's lost her identity that way. And so now it's just go love the woman again, right? Now, I mean, we all know on the fact that um, she's committing adultery, that it's um, Hosea's wife, but it's, she doesn't even get that title at this point, right? She's lost the ability to be called the husband, the wife of Hosea. And so pic- the picture here is that Hosea has a whoring bride who is currently in a love affair with another woman. And so if we're picturing this in reality, she is the talk of the town, right? This is the prophet's wife who is sleeping around. This is the prophet's wife who has left her family, left her husband, and is now living down the street with this other guy. And Hosea is being called to go to go show her love, right? And, and that's amazing, isn't it, about the command? It's go and love a woman. How do you do that? I mean, maybe you can find a way to like force an act of, I don't know, like... Okay, Hosea. Okay, Gomer. I will forgive you. Like just just to say something, or but he's not being called just to like, I don't know, publicly grant forgiveness or something. It's not just like the single act that's being called upon him. He's being called to go and 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 love her and take her and rescue her and get her and bring her back and then show her love for the rest of her life. This is a 
This is a massive command. And he's called to go to her. So in verse number two, he does. He says in verse two, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half a homer of barley. And you've got to picture the scene again, once again. Why does Hosea have to buy his wife back? Why would you have to buy your wife? Why not just go find her and bring her back? Somehow or another, she's been sold into slavery. She's not her own property anymore. He can't just go bring her back. At this point, he has to buy her back. Now, is this a surprise to us? I don't think so. Do you remember chapter 2? Do you remember the judgment that was going to fall in chapter 2? He said, I will strip her naked and I will set her as the day that she was born and I will make her as a wilderness and I will set her like dry land and slay her with thirst. A woman that's gone through that, probably not in a good financial situation. Verse 7 of chapter 2 says, And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. And so these multiple lovers that she's had have now left her in the dust. Right? They're gone. They're, they're not in the, like, and she's following after them. She wants them back, but they don't want her. And so this is the situation she's in. She's all by herself now. Um, chapter 2, verse 9 says, Therefore I will return, and I will take away my corn in the time thereof, and I will take away my wine in the season thereof, and I will co- recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. Verse 12 says, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she has said, These are the rewards that my lovers have given me. And so the judgment says that God is going to take everything from her, that she will be left with absolutely nothing including clothes on her back um, to cover her nakedness. I mean, that's, that's, that's the severity of the judgment that's pronounced in chapter 2. And so for us to arrive at chapter 3, verse 2, and find out that, that she's been sold into slavery, it kind of does make sense. Maybe she borrowed money and didn't pay it back, and so she was, she's forced to be in slavery. Maybe she, she truly sold herself into slavery. I will be your slave if you will at least give me a bed and, and some food. Whatever the case... Hosea now arrives at the slave auction. And what a disgusting place for a man of God to be, right? Slaves were sold either naked or almost naked. So slave after slave is brought forth and bid on. And now here is Hosea standing, waiting for his chance to bid on his wife. The average price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. Hosea knows he doesn't have that much. But thankfully, Gomer is past her prime, right? She's been pretty well used and abused. Um, years of adultery and the party lifestyle have taken a toll on her. And so Gomer, Hosea has brought everything that he has. And now it's time for Gomer to be up on the stand. And she's walked before the crowd, humiliated before everyone. And people know this is Hosea's wife. And maybe people see that Hosea's there and, and watching this. I mean, we can, we can picture how this whole thing is unfolding, right? That that people are waiting to see what happens? What's Hosea doing? Does he just want to watch? I mean, what, what's going on here? We can imagine the jeers and the whispers. Um, we can imagine what she looks like, right? That she's just, she's just gone through a lot of rough times, and she's not the beautiful bride that he once married. Um, and so the bidding starts because she's weathered, at 10 pieces of silver. And Hosea, right away, I'll, I'll pay the 10. Somebody else says 12. Hosea says 14. 
And the other person says, I'll, I'll go 15. And Hosea looks at his coins and he sees he's, he's got 15. And, he, and the bidding's at 15. He's, he's lost. I, what do you do? And then he remembers he's got at home a homer and a half of barley. And so he says, I'll give her 15 and a, a homer and a half of barley. I'll, I'll give everything I've got, right? I mean, I don't have any more money, but I've got, I've got barley. Now, barley, if you know, it's, it's not, it's, I mean, it's the cheapest grain. It's not, you don't make good bread out of barley. And so this is, he's a poor man. And what he's got left is a homer and a half of barley. And so he offers that for her. And I wonder what the crowd is thinking. I wonder if they laughed. I wonder if they thought Hosea was thinking he would buy her back just to get his vengeance on her. Or I wonder if they saw the love in his eyes. I wonder if they saw that, that this was more than just vengeance and whatever. I wonder if they could see why Hosea was doing what he was doing. And so the auctioneer says, going once, going twice, sold back to her husband. I imagine the the crowd was immensely confused. What is he going to do with her now that she is rightfully his slave? According to the law, she was his property. No matter what the crowd thinks, Hosea's attention is on his wife. Verse 3 says, And he said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So I also will be for thee. Hosea is creating boundaries for the relationship. He has this full restoration in view. Right? He makes it immediately clear that this is not vengeance, that this is not, I want to be your Lord and you my slave, that I will, you'll abide with me, you'll stay with me for many, many days. You're not going to go back and play the whore. You're going to be for me only, not for another man. There's going to be this faithfulness in our relationship. And not only will you be that way for me, I'm going to do the same for you. Right? He, it, it's almost like this new marriage covenant. It's almost like the, a recommittal of marriage vows. That's, that's how verse 3 reads. Hosea is restoring Gomer to her position. Um, there's a song that down here writes called Glory by the Way of Shame. And when I was reading this verse, I thought about the song. And it, uh, the, the second verse says, she cheated. So it's, it's just telling a story of, uh, of another relationship. It says, she cheated on him twice, but for fear she never told. She finally confessed before her heart ran cold. With pain in his eyes, he walked out of the house and drove to town, bought her a white wedding dress, came home to her, and danced to the song of forgiveness. I think it's a, and then the chorus goes on, glory by the way of shame. And, and I think it's a, a beautiful um, picture of what human forgiveness and reconciliation can look like, Right? that this woman has done something terrible and that he leaves and it seems like he's gone forever and then he comes back with a white wedding dress and, and they dance the song of forgiveness. It's, it's a really cool picture. But as amazing as that would be, it's nothing compared to what Hosea is doing here. He first loved a woman completely undeserving of his love. He took a prostitute and made her his bride. Her public unfaithfulness eventually destroyed her life destroyed everything about her where she was worth less, I mean, half of a normal slave. 
led her into bondage, led her into slavery. And yet Hosea goes, and while she's in the middle of this sin, buys her back. Gives everything he's got to buy her back. What a picture of, of God's forgiveness. What a picture of God's grace. What a picture of God's love for us. Yeah. Yep. In, this, in this whole book, you know, sitting here listening to this, also for the first time, mm-hmm. but how it goes through our sinfulness is so exposed in this book. Mm-hmm. When you went through that chapter too about the lovers we have, and then when we want, they're gone. They yep. want nothing to do with us. It is. It's such a picture of the things that draw our heart away from God. Yep. And when we get them, they never bring satisfaction. Absolutely. And then here's a, a woman who had no desire for her husband. I mean, she wasn't like begging him to come and get her. She's a slave now. Mm-hmm. And yet he comes together. Yep. It's a beautiful It is. Picture. Absolutely. I, I mean, there's so much of the character of man, the depravity of man, and there's so much of the character of God in this book. And, it's, and that's, I mean, James Montgomery Boyce, the best chapter in the Bible. Why? I mean, because I don't know how you depict this grace and forgiveness, depict the gospel more clearly than what's happened here. Um, there is an explanation in, in verse 4. It says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. And most of those things, they're not necessarily good or bad things. Uh, the, the only thing that could be considered um, bad there is the teraphim. The, it'd be probably an idol. Um, but everything else, I mean, can be used in the, in the true right worship of God. But he's saying that there will be a time that they don't have those things. But then in verse 5, he said, Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. And this is a messianic prophecy. It's not just the literal David. It's, it's the one that would sit on David's throne. We'll seek David her king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. It all points back to the goodness of God for the bride that he loves. There will be a time of punishment. There will be a time of redemption, of reconciliation, of recommitment. There will be a return of the king. And... I think what these verses are saying is that there will be a day where it's a whole lot better than it is now. Right? There'll be a, a day when all of this wrong is made right. And all of this is pointing forward to the day that Christ comes, right? I mean, it's pointing forward to the day he comes to redeem them and pointing forward to the day he comes in his return. Um, we're just about out of time now, but I want to read a few verses in Revelation that I think summarize what this, what this looks like when he does return, right? It, it's kind of the fulfillment of these prophecies. Revelation chapter 21. We'll start reading at verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful, true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. 
I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What what an incredible day. What, what an incredible prophecy. What an incredible thought that someday that, that those verses will be reality. And that all of what Hosea has been pointing to and promising, that it comes to pass. And so, I mean, how, how helpful it would be for us if we could see ourselves as Gomer, who were sinners so undeserving of reconciliation, that Christ came to, to be our husband, right? To, to redeem us and to buy us back. Just like, just like Hosea went into the slave market to buy back Gomer. That's exactly what Christ did for us that he paid the price, and that he redeemed us. And because he's redeemed us, there's a day coming where we get to live and know him and be with him forever. And so that's exactly what is happening here, and I think it's, I think it's wonderful. So thanks for coming today. God bless.